And I think, you know, a lot of my work has focused on power and the kind of way in which power is mediated, whether it's between two people at a citizen level, whether it's between the state and the person, or whether it's between a corporate or another actor and the citizen. And I think in the workplace context, a lot of the work I've done has really drilled down to where boundaries are not well articulated, understood, and eventually exploited. And so I try to have a really healthy kind of boundary around my personal relationships in the work context versus outside of work. Kia ora. Welcome to Humans at Work. I'm Jules, your host. Thanks for joining me and our latest guest. And thanks for taking some time in your day to indulge your curiosity about other people and their humanness. If your thirst is unquenched after this, check out humansatwork.org. Now let's begin. Today I'm talking to Diane White. Rather than introduce Diane, I'm going to ask her to introduce herself, tell us where she's sitting right now, what her current job is, and what her favourite thing is to eat. Over to you, Di. Thanks, Jules. Um, Yeah, it's great to be having this chat with you today. I'm here in Melbourne on Wurundjeri land, lands of the the people of the Kulin Nation. So I'm sitting in my office, it's my back shed, which has been repurposed into a bit of an office. My current job, a director at EY in the infrastructure advisory uh, team, part of our strategy and transactions practice. And uh, my favourite thing to eat was that the, the last bit... It's an easy one for me. I'm a big pastry lover, love all pastries, but particularly like a very buttery croissant is um, probably my favourite food. We should so have breakfast. (laughs) I love pastries. I would say pan au chocolat is my absolute go-to, although I have recently discovered Argentinian pastries um, and there is a cafe locally that makes them. So next time you're here. We will eat for breakfast. Well, I'll match you. And next time you're in Melbourne, I've sampled many, many, many pastries. Um, I have my favourites. And, um, yes, I can I can take you on a small pastry tour of, of Melbourne. I think we have what some year someone voted as the best croissant in the world um, in Melbourne. Wow. But I would actually say they're very good, but too much hype. I need something a bit more humble in my croissant. Surely, surely the best croissant on the world has got to be in Paris. Surely, or, right? You know, some small town on the on the cap, the coast of of France somewhere. Yeah, I think they were going for the shock factor when they chose Melbourne, but um, it has led to this particular um, pastry shop having these ridiculous lines, and they have a, a like a they're all very concrete and a little a couple of men standing in a box with some butter in the middle kind of on display whilst they're making their croissants it's 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 all very it's a lot it sounds amazing so would you say that your favorite ritual of the day involves pastry or do you have something else that you like to do every day oh my gosh if I could have pastry every day yes that would be I think at various times unfortunately sometimes I'm headed towards that but um no um, favorite ritual. I I'm really I'm a very ritualistic person. I love rituals. So most days I I read in the morning. Um, I love reading, and so getting to do that every morning is I've found a really great thing um, to start the day. And I think since working from home so much, it's been able to kind of fit into that morning 
routine um, with a cup of tea. And then I also run most days, not every day, but most days. Again, a really important ritual to kind of clear the head, whether it's in the morning or at night. And yeah, and then I think the other ritual that we, that me and my partner do a lot is um, every day, just about we do, it's a thing on the New York Times app called Spelling Bee, Treaters Love, which we do every day. I sound like I'm an ad for both Learn Croissants and the Spelling Bee on New York Times. Well, I would imagine that the running every day, and I didn't know that about you, so I'm very <laughs> impressed. The running every day counteracts the pastries almost every day as well, right? Uh yeah, that 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 should be that should be how the the math works. But um, yeah, I I think that the the running every day is uh, very much a clearing of head, not doing anything else, kind of ritual. And do you listen to podcasts or music or do you just reflect about your day and go over the arguments you could have had or should have had? <laughs> it's funny you ask that. Up until recently, I'd, um, I often often do run in the mornings and would listen to the ABC's Radio National in the mornings. But I actually found in the lead up to the election, which has just occurred when this has been recorded, um, I just couldn't palate, I couldn't stomach the kind of campaign fever of kind of everything that was going on so I instead moved back to music which I don't think I'm really paying attention to when I'm running I often find I have a particular thing going around in my head that I kind of work out and maybe sometimes it's one of those what I should have said kind of things but usually it's a here's a thing I'm, I just need to think about for a bit. And who makes up your family? So my family here in Melbourne is uh, my partner, Kate, and our cat, Dante, who's very firmly part of the family. And then back in New Zealand, I have my mum and my dad and three siblings and a couple of nieces and a nephew as well. So, yeah, I think maybe being a, a migrant and moving to Australia, I end up probably treating my kind of chosen family is quite a big part of my life as well because you don't have that immediate family around so particular friends that have become like family over the last seven years as well would sort of form part of that family fabric what uh, order do you come in your in you know the four of you from a sibling perspective can you guess no I can't guess. <laughs> I mean I could I think I'd be wrong though oh I'm the youngest are you the youngest? Through and through youngest child. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, okay. So what were you like as a child? Did you like to read when you were I a child? Did. I did, although not particularly widely. I just loved to read The Babysitter's Club and Sweet Valley High were my um, favourite books um, and read them a lot and sometimes over again because they, there's a limit to how many they can publish, although there's many of them. Yeah, no, I was, I was a very earnest uh, child, I think, and probably still I'm quite an earnest person. And I think probably quite self-conscious about things. Uh, sort of the way I'd put it is self-conscious about things that didn't really matter. And so one of the things that I've sort of managed to uh, sort of divorce the emotional weight from in recent years because it felt like the biggest thing in the world when I was a child was around the age of probably nine or ten I identified that I was short-sighted okay so I needed to get glasses um shouldn't be a surprise you know many many people above me family-wise all short-sighted needed glasses but I 
was just so so mortified by that as a, a realization and so I spent the next kind of three years working out ways to avoid the broader realization from those around me that I also needed glasses and I was very short-sighted I am very very short-sighted and yeah it was it's it's sort of funny because it's like why was I so self-conscious about it I mean part of it was I was at a small school and I don't even know if there were many any other kids that wore glasses but um for whatever reason I was so um self-conscious that that was something that felt almost you know catastrophic and have you embraced the glasses and the short-sightedness now? Oh, um, no, no. I mean, yes and no. I um, I wear contacts most of the time. I have glasses. I've lost my glasses. If anyone's seen them, that would be great. About, uh, I think when I was actually in New Zealand last, um, they haven't didn't seem to come home with me and I haven't bothered yet to get new glasses. I love my glasses when I wear them, but when you're really short-sighted, I think, they, it takes a lot to get used to either wearing glasses or wearing contacts and either way splitting is uh, shifting back is a, is a difficult task. So, yes, embraced to some extent, but clearly still something there. I too became short-sighted when I was uh, young, about 11, I think, and I needed glasses to look at the then blackboard. Yep, no, that was it, yep. Um, You know, before whiteboards. Um, And I I wasn't self-conscious, I wouldn't say, but they were just very frustrating because Mm -hmm. it rained a lot and they would fog up and get wet. And I actually had laser eye surgery when I was 29 uh, revolutionized my entire life because oh. I was sh- so short-sighted that when I was in the shower I would have to pick up the shampoo bottle and bring it towards me to see whether it was shampoo or conditioner um, so the minute I had the laser surgery and I could within three days I could drive without glasses I suddenly discovered a whole new world yeah, right. um, and it sounds, you know, hyperbole to say to say that, but actually being able to see without having to think I need to put my glasses on, being able to wear sunglasses, you know, being able to see first thing in the morning before yeah. having to put them on actually made a, a massive difference. Yeah. So I, I share yeah. your pain. Your I, 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 I should think about it. I think it's that thing where contacts kind of get you halfway. And so you you get the benefit of being able to, whether it's, you know, see in the shower or not get the fog up and things like that. Um, you don't get the being able to wake up in the morning and not and be able to see, though. That one that one is especially for laser eye surgeon surgery survivors, I think. And do you think you still have that sort of self-consciousness about things? Or do you think you've kind of, it's been beaten out of you or you've <sighs> grown out of it? No, I think I do, but it's it's funny the way it manifests. And it's probably that thing where sometimes you need someone else to hold a bit of a mirror up to you to be able to see these things. I think um, so, you know, my partner kind of jokes sometimes that I have, oh, what, what's the term? It's almost like I grew up in an environment, I was in a very small town, a farming community, not at all world, worldly or cosmopolitan or neither of my parents studied at university, although they're both really intelligent people. But I think that kind of upbringing where I felt very aware of the fact that I didn't come from I guess the educator class and that I think still carries through but in quite funny little ways also I'm told I think you know the feeling the need to project an image of not being a 
kind of a country hick kind of thing and and which is some it's interesting to kind of interrogate that more as I get older I think you know self-conscious in in different ways I don't think I still have the same kind of probably the sort of physical hang-ups and things that you have as a, a child and a teenager I'm very um happy to have outgrown those <laughs> and what would you what would you say um somebody close to you would would use the word, three words that they would use to describe you now yeah, I um, it, it's a funny one because I, I find it you know hard. Uh, like most people, I think to to think of how someone else would describe me. I think there's kind of there's the head and the heart bit. I think I'm both a head person and a heart person. Very intuitive, so I, I feel things a lot, but I'm also try. I'm also very um, driven by my intuition in a way that I kind of have to sometimes check on myself a little bit. I think, and then I think you know. Third one, determined, just very determined. That can definitely go towards stubbornness. Um, but, yeah, I like to, um, yeah, just plod along and, and get things done. So I would, if I was to describe you, one of the words I would use uh, would be glamorous. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's interesting, isn't it, if you think about your how you were as a child in terms mm-hmm. of, you know, your self-consciousness about things and and the sort of, you know, I'm from a small country town. Um, you live in a very glamorous city now. I mean, Melbourne, you know, known for its bright lights and culture and and sort of always on, buzzy. And, you you know, your projection of your image to, to me as a former client and now as somebody, you know, we talk fairly regularly, you come across as glamorous is one of your um one of your words so it's interesting to to see that wasn't one of yours yeah no no and just so funny off the back of yeah the the way in which I sort of I, I guess the antithesis of glamour is like the country hick right like it's it's very funny that to, that you've picked up on that yeah I mean I think I am um, I also have that kind of I genuinely love some of the things that I think represent that kind of glamour thing. Like, I love fashion. I love um, culture and 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 you know whether it's shows or books and things like that. But but yeah, that's a it's a very very. I didn't expect that. <laughs> so why did you decide to leave New Zealand and go to Melbourne? Is it the first place that you've lived and worked in as an adult, or did you just land there after many travels? Um sort of somewhere in, in the middle, um, I suppose. So I lived in, speaking of glamorous places, I lived in Stockholm and lived in Sweden for a, a little while, back sort of in my early 20s, studied in Uppsala, and then I um, moved to Stockholm and worked there as a, as a nanny, a living nanny for a while. And then I went back to New Zealand quite reluctantly to finish my, um, my degrees, which were both otherwise sort of going to fall by the wayside. And um, and then worked, sort of had no money, so just tried to earn a bit of money before I could move overseas again. It was probably after a couple of years living in in Auckland. So I after I graduated, I worked in Wellington for a little while and then I moved to Auckland and I really loved Auckland. Auckland was in a really great place when I was, I still think it is, it's in a, but, you know, the, the old idea of Auckland back, you know, 15 years ago of being devoid of culture and, you know, soulless and all of that had um, well and truly passed. And um, I loved living in Auckland. I was working for government, um, which is quite unusual in that, especially in that time. I think it's more common now, but, you know, seven or eight years ago, there wasn't a lot of the kind of bureaucracy based in Auckland. 
But, um, and I knew that I really enjoyed working for government, but I knew I didn't want to move back to Wellington. And the main reasons for that were just, it was the weather. Like, I, it's a silly thing, but it really, after living there for kind of six, six seven years off and on, seven, eight years even off and on, I think um, I was just tired of it. And Auckland was so warm and glorious. And so, and I knew I wanted a new job. I'd been in my job for a couple of years and I was ready for something else. Um, and I didn't really see many other opportunities in Auckland. And so I really just opened up one day the Victoria Jobs website. Me and my partner at the time were coming over to Melbourne for a wedding of two of our close friends. And we and I sort of thought, oh, I'll apply for this job. And then I got an interview and then we were here for the wedding. So I had the interview in person and then they called me the next day and offered me the job. And, and I went, oh, God, oh, God, what are we doing? We hadn't even, even talked about it. Like we talked about it, but it was just like, oh, I'll apply for this job and we'll see what happens. Yeah. And so then we decided to move here. It was going to be at most a year to, to the point that I actually was also interviewing for a job in Auckland and was going to, you know, try and see if they could defer the offer by a year so we could come back and I've just spent a year here. But that, this is what happens with Australia generally, but particularly, I think, Melbourne and people, you know, as a New Zealander, we're so privileged. We move here with no visas, no need for anything. So you don't, it's just so easy to stay. Um, and so, yeah, here I am still. Do you think Australia is it for you or do you think you will move somewhere else, maybe move back to New Zealand? Yeah, it's a it's a, a one that I think anyone who's living overseas um, often contemplates, but particularly over the past couple of years with COVID. And I think um, had I been in a different country during COVID than Australia, where I actually was able to come back um, during the course of the pandemic, and I felt um, I felt close to home, although far away. I think I didn't have the same experience that perhaps people living further afield had. Um, I think if it wasn't for that I was living in Australia, I think the last couple of years would have made me really think about moving back to New Zealand. Um, but I think now that we feel a bit more through the pandemic um, and I can travel easily again, um, I feel like, staying here for a, a while is 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 the plan um my dream is to kind of be able to spend long periods of the year in New Zealand as well as here um but um and I think that my work and the way that work is moving will only enable that kind of flexibility um so yeah I think for the for the time being staying here but with the view of spending a lot of time in New Zealand what would you say is the most memorable country you've ever visited? It's a few, but um, absolutely sort of my most, and I think any memorable experience in travel is always that kind of combination of the place and where you're at, right? I think the the one that comes to mind is, is Turkey and time I spent in Istanbul. And it was just that. It was the combination of an extraordinary city that is just leaves me speechless like it's such an amazing city it's so big it's so um there's so much about it so much history there's so much um culture there's there's everything happening all at once and also where I was at the time I'd been in Europe for 
four, four weeks, three or four weeks, and was kind of coming through a hard time on a personal front. And kind of that holiday represented kind of working through a whole lot of stuff for me. And that period at the end when I was in Istanbul was where I felt like I'd kind of hit a bit of a breakthrough. And so um, I just had this extraordinary time. I just loved that city so much. And I, I can't wait to, to go back again. Um, yeah, I, I love traveling so much. I've had really lucky to travel to quite a few different places and each country I think I've been to, I've generally kind of found some kind of connection with. So where's the next place on your list? <laughs> Oh, this is, I, I am um, so itchy feet at the moment, itchy footed at the moment um, after um, not being able to travel for a couple of years. So we just went to Vietnam for a couple of weeks, which was just fantastic. Um, I absolutely loved it. It was amazing to be able to travel again. And um, I kind of don't count New Zealand in my travel plans because <laughs> it's a different kind of travel when you come home. Um, so we'll be coming back to New Zealand hopefully in the next month or two. But like I said, it's a bit different. But hopefully in uh, end of August, either uh, Japan or um, Peru. So that's uh, the options at the moment. But we're kind of, flights are not particularly very friendly to South America at the moment. Got lots of stops and not many direct flights. And then Japan is still actually um, not even open to tourists. So <laughs> things will need to change there. Well, they sound like very different holidays as well. Yeah, yeah, they are. I think my favourite holidays are usually a combination of, you know, food and nature and city. And I think Japan is just going to be, I've been to Tokyo before, but um, not to other parts of Japan. So that would be all of those. And then Peru, I not long before COVID kind of got my first real taste of South America and I've just been like hanging out to go back since then. So it's a bit of a different one, but very nature focused still. Sounds amazing. Lots to look forward to. If Indeed. only the flights would come available. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. It, 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 I think we're still really early days. And as we, people start to travel more, it's that kind of, you know, supply and demand, you know. So thinking about, work to earn the money to pay for the flights was nannying your first paying job or had you done some work before then no yeah no I've, I've worked since I was relatively young my first job uh I think I did the sort of bits and bobs kind of earning kind of glorified pocket money I suppose and then my first real job was when I was about 14 working in hospitality in a cafe and I worked in um, the same cafe until I was about 19 and more my school holidays and things like that. So yeah, very much I feel like I grew up in hospitality and then worked in, started doing nannying when I was about 19 in university um, on the side, which was wonderful for many reasons. A family that I nannied for, two families I nannied for in Wellington, both remain you know close in my life to this day and really wonderful watching the children grow up. Um, and then, yeah, moved to when I moved to Sweden, I um, didn't plan to spend time nannying there, but I didn't want to come back and I could do that without too many visa issues. So that was a good fit. What would you say are some lessons that you've learned from your early roles that you might still lean on in your current work? Yeah. I mean, hospitality, anyone who's worked in hospitality knows I use those skills every day. <laughs> Um, multitasking like you, there's no job like you that you multitask in like a busy hospital job you're thinking about um, 
what to do next. You're thinking about all the different people that need different things from you. Um, it's an incredibly collaborative environment, hospitality. You or you're relying on everyone else to do their role well, and um, but you're also supporting people constantly in those roles. You learn to be nice to people. <laughs> I mean, hospitality, um, both in terms of being nice to to customers, but you also really understand how horrible it is when people are not nice to you. Um, and you get a lot of that in hospitality. And I think hold, trying to hold on to those lessons are really important, I think, as you go through your career and you have the opportunity to, um, you will be frustrated at people and frustrated at um, things that are outside your control and how you kind of try and hold that, I think is a lesson um, you know, I've learned, but continue to learn. So in your current job, how relevant is the job title to the work that you actually do? Yeah, it's, it's funny. Our team has um, a constant kind of existential crisis about what our team is called. We're called Infrastructure Advisory, and um, that um, means many different things. It's, it is, it's, it's, it's relevant. I mean, um, as a kind of um, area, we um, do advise on, on infrastructure, whether it's um, you know, traditional kind of hard infrastructure, tra transport infrastructure, um, bricks and mortar through to, you know, social infrastructure, which often comes down to people and processes and systems. And, yeah, I think the work that we do broadly fits under that umbrella, but people don't always think of me as an infrastructure person, although I think um, that's interesting in and of itself sometimes in terms of the way that you perceive your skills and your what you might be um able to do and suited to do based on yeah, your skills and your gender and other things my job really like as you would know um, it's a lot of problem solving and sense making um, and that's sort of what the day-to-day -day looks like whether it's big picture problem solving or little um, this particular issue problem solving it's that's the core of it when's the last time you moved jobs or organizations I been at my current role for four and a half years now so it's been a little while um it's really crept up on me um but I think within the context of my role I've got to do so many different roles and so many different things that you kind of feel like you're constantly doing new jobs and doing new roles um yeah so it's it's been a little while now since I um have have moved into a new role have you ever resigned on the spur of the moment no, I haven't. I haven't. I've, I've never done that. I think um, I've always tried to be quite careful about not getting to a point in a particular role where you need to leave in terms of feeling like you really need to get out as opposed to, okay, I'm not learning now or I'm not growing or I'm not enjoying this and I should look to move on. I think that's the kind of point you want to be at. So um, I've been lucky enough to to be able to kind of have a bit of a runway and find the next opportunity um, with, with every time I've made a, a major change. I mean, I have done, I have resigned, not on the spur of the moment, but, you know, on a Sunday night, yeah, right. dreading, dreading the Monday morning. When I was younger and early in my career, you know, when I didn't want to feel like a failure and so despite all of the weight of the, the work or the context or the hours or just being, you know, over, over that kind of work, I used to just keep going. 
I think mm. I was brought up with that that sense of you don't move jobs unless you've got a job. Mm. But the decision to look for another job would have been to, to admit defeat. Wow. And so I did find myself um, one memorable occasion, you know, having the, the Sunday night blues. Mm. And uh, I just happened to take a call from my mum that night who was overseas And she must have had some sort of intuition because out of the blue in the conversation, she said, you know, I'm very proud of you. And I just burst into floods of tears and decided right then and there that on Monday I was going to go in and tender my resignation. And that's exactly what I did. Now in my, you know, as I'm older and wiser, (laughs) uh, my sort of advice to people is always, it's good to go to something rather than run from something because what you don't want is the memories of your previous role to be all about the ending, which in many cases can be quite a grind, quite a negative experience. If you run to something, you're actually running from one positive uh, experience. You made a really strong choice and you move to another hopefully positive experience. Whereas if you get to the point where you're almost breaking and you're forced to do that, what you'll remember is that you felt like you were forced to do something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I've probably uh, once or twice probably um, felt like I've been in that category. Um, and what that has led to is probably moving to things that weren't quite right or the the, the right thing to do. And was lucky enough to kind of find my way out of that. I think the the one job that comes to mind, it, it was a bit like that was sort of my big, not my big transition. I, I had didn't, it wasn't a massive transition, but I mean, I studied um, law and sort of trained as a lawyer and then worked in what I would kind of call law adjacent jobs for a few years, um, not as a practicing lawyer, but kind of doing legal work of some kind. And I was working, the, the job I moved over to Australia for was to work on this big um, class action that followed the Black Saturday bushfires that happened back in 2009 and was going to be working with the judge who was writing the judgment and basically um, supporting writing that judgment. And when I um, sort of interviewed for the role, um, they were kind of at the point where they'd sort of realised or accepted that it wasn't going to settle because usually a big class action settles Um, almost inevitably settles prior to the judgment and in this case it had gone so far it got through 200 days in court the longest civil trial in Victoria's history and it still um, hadn't settled and so I came on board with this kind of expectation um, of likely that it would run through and we'd do this judgment and it would be great to be part of that and um, I think within a month of starting the case settled and you know, when a big case like that settles, you just literally just drop pens and everything stops and you throw everything out, basically. Um, and so I was still employed. I still had a job, but it was kind of, um, you know, the judge got me to work on other judgments and things. And it was during that that I was like, oh, I don't actually, I'm not actually very interested in the law. I don't actually like practicing the practice of law. Other people are far more excited about this than I am. Um, and I needed to find a, a job to kind of go to because I was doing things that I very was very much aware I didn't really want to be doing um and yeah I think I was very lucky because I think I I I wasn't I left it with a you know very supportive it was a very supportive environment and everything but I was not wanting to do that work 
And so I ran probably from it a bit. And I was just lucky that the thing that I ran to was led me down a really good path because it could have easily not been that case. Yeah, absolutely. Do you think you're a, um, a cause person or a, an organisation person? Do you go to a job because of the kind of work you can do because it has an end purpose or because the organisation sounds really interesting and has some really good values or is it a mixture? Mm, I don't think I used to ever know there was a distinction and I wish that I had kind of known that so that I could be a bit more deliberate about it. Um, I used to be 100% cause. Um, I just wanted to do meaningful, purposeful work that I felt um, really excited by. Um, and I think the transition I made when I came to EY was when I moved from being a cause person solely to being an organisation and cause and who do I work with and kind of um, looking at the people around me and, and that kind of thing. And I'd been working um, at the Human Rights Commission um, leading an inquiry into sex discrimination and harassment and police like to me kind of was my golden cause right like really passionate about police culture reform change and gender and gender equity great golden mix um, and that role was really great on some fronts and I really enjoyed parts of it but it was then that I realized that actually what's important to me in a job is so much more than that um, and moving from what was so much kind of purpose work to something that on the face of it didn't look as kind of purpose driven um, was something I had to really grapple with. And I think going back to the earlier point about kind of self-conscious, like I think being seen as a good person by virtue of my job title was really important to me mm. um, and moving to, you know, a, a big global company with a job title that would mean nothing to anyone that was a really big kind of growing and um, experience and absolutely was the right one and I'm so pleased that I, I did but I, I think I had to let go of being a cause person and doing it. I think there's something about um, finding the niche where you feel that you can achieve the most good and for everybody, they'll there'll be a different niche. I remember working in the not-for-profit sector, working and leading people who are working with clients who were very vulnerable and realising that where I got most of my satisfaction from was not the day-to-day -day engagement with the clients, but actually from the engagement with actors across the system so social services, housing agencies, the police, the government, central government that was setting all of the policies in place and being able to work at that level and influence, mm. right, for a better outcome in the end, as opposed to um, dealing with people on a one-to-one -one basis where the amount of influence I had was really only down to my ability to show empathy and do what I could within the system. And it was quite a strong realisation for me because I was always of the opinion that, uh, you know, how you treat people is going to be the, be you know, the thing that makes the most difference. Mm. And I was probably about 24, 25 when I realised that the, the way to change the system is to work in the system. Mm. Mm. Um, but that is not the same as working on the front line. 
mm. for me. Mm. So I, you know, consciously took roles where I was actually a, a step away from the, you know, the clients on the front line while still trying to re- retain that sense of really clear connection mm. and that sense of um, outcome. So you work through agencies or at a system level, at a national level or regional level, you have to have some trust that it, that eventually it will actually make a difference for the individual, but you're not going to be there to necessarily see it and, and implement it. You're a step away thinking slightly ahead. A hundred, a hundred percent. And I think for me, maybe even more and, and slightly cynical is that it's also not a, just about the purpose of my work that I'm allowed to want to have a good working environment with that I enjoy on the day-to-day basis. And Absolutely, if you can get that in a purpose-aligned role, um, that's fantastic. But, you know, being able to enjoy going to work each day and working with great people and working in a culture that supports and, you know, inspires you in some way and is invested in you is really, really important. And that is okay to prioritise that above or equally to what is the purpose and impact of my work. Um, yeah, it's, it's probably moving past that kind of a little bit of that saviour complex and being like, well, actually, you know, I want to have a job that I enjoy and that I come to work each day and get to do good work. And regardless of what the purpose of that work is, um, can I, if I'm doing work that I find really meaningful and I'm like you, you know, driving systems track change, absolutely. But that doesn't need to be the, the only thing I focus on in my what I want. Do you have a, a best friend at work? Do you believe you need a best friend at work? No, I, I don't on both fronts, I think. I really like so many of my colleagues and I enjoy the company of so many of my colleagues. And I think some of my colleagues I do probably friend-like things with, but I also quite find it really important to be able to have quite good boundaries in a workplace context. And I think, you know, a lot of my work has focused on um, power and the kind of way in which power is mediated, whether it's between two people at a citizen level, whether it's between the state and the person, or whether it's between kind of, you know, a corporate or another actor and, and and the citizen. And all of that has made me think a lot about how you see and understand power and you see and um, and name power rather than, you know, um, pretend that we live in societies that don't have power structures. And I think in the workplace context, a lot of the work I've done has really drilled down to where boundaries are not well articulated, understood, and eventually exploited. And so I think I try to have a really healthy kind of boundary around my personal relationships in the work context versus outside of work. I think I generally get it pretty good um, and it's hard when you're someone who's naturally loves to engage with people and build positive relationships but I think I can look at all of my relationships in the work context and they all they're, they're not the same as the relationships I have in the personal context um, even though their work their relationships I cherish and I value and I enjoy so much that really resonates actually because I um, you know I'm sort of an open book type person I don't believe in hiding you know who I am when I'm at work and I try and be the same person and have integrity in in both arenas 
And, you know, I love finding out about people and having fun at work and having a joke. You know, I don't like to take anything too seriously, although the work is serious. Mm-hmm. And I think what that does is it translates into people's expectations that you are actually want to spend a lot of time with all of your workmates but I love my family and my home life and I keep them, generally I keep them quite separate. Mm. Um, and I found certainly when I had um, children, I had young children, expectations that I would stay after work and, mm-hmm. and have a drink. And, and I used to say, I've spent eight hours with you and I really like all of you, but you know what? I would prefer to go home and see my babies, you know, or I just want to go home and put my comfy um, slippers on and be at home with my family because, you know, you're not my family, you're my work people and I really value you, but there are, there are some boundaries there. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think my experience has been that people are really receptive to that, whether it's explicit or, uh, or, or more implied, because I think it's just something that people think if I, if I like people I'm around and I enjoy spending time with them, I therefore have to have a friendship as opposed to there being this kind of other category of people that work that you really enjoy being around and spending time with. Um, and yeah, I think moving into um, an environment to where I came from a very kind of purpose orientated sector and spaces where your identity was so tied up in your work that as a result, your whole life had to be tied up in your work and your friendships and your relationships. And I, I have some friendships from that those jobs and that time that is still really important to me and I really value. But I, when I came to EY, it was actually a really to start with a really um, a really nice and somewhat of a relief to be in a space where I felt like my relationships were so much more professional. And I started to build this sort of sense of being able to have people who I work with who I really, really like and enjoy spending time with, but I don't need to treat them as the same as my friends and they don't need to be integrated into my social fabric outside of work in the same way. So would you, I mean, I'm interested in that because I think it ties back to the concept of power as well. And I wonder if you would reflect that potentially that's also about you having more confidence in your own power, your own professional experience and that people might you know value your 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 advice and listen to what you say without them needing to necessarily like you yeah I mean look that's a journey right like (laughs) I think I'm getting there I think I'm definitely still grappling with what it means to be a people pleaser Um, but I think very much getting better at accepting that people will not always like you and then even more so almost I think the next step in that journey is almost embracing to some extent that um, and trusting yourself that there will be things that you do that do not please everyone and that's still the right thing to do I think that's a really hard um, experience and it requires you to have good people around you who call you out on things or who help you to come to good decisions and and that you can trust that if you ask them for their advice you'll get a really honest response um 
but that you don't just use the feedback that you receive as the barometer of whether or not something was the right decision. Yeah, and I mean, I'm, I'm lucky I haven't had to make a lot of those decisions, but every day in my work, I'm navigating this at a micro level when you're making decisions about, I think we should do it this way, I think we should do it that way, and being really conscious of when do I, when do I hold to what I believe because... I have information or insights or expertise that ensures that that decision is the right decision and I can trust it versus when do you say actually all of this kind of noise that I'm hearing around it suggests that this is not the right decision and I need to rethink it. Would you say that there is a link there between that kind of sense of confidence and using your own power with gender and gender experience in the workplace? Yeah, I think so. I think my experience of gender in the workplace, I mean, I've thought a lot about it and it's something that I find really interesting in that um, different spaces it's been more or less pronounced. I think I've actually in recent years, and this doesn't really answer your question, but it's something that I have been thinking a lot about, is come to understand more the value of sort of certain stereotypically coded masculine qualities as much as feminine qualities. I think earlier on, I think my um, sometimes that narrative and the conversation around gender equity can become very well, a binary, but also very kind of overly simplistic where it's like, woman is good, man is bad. <laughs> and um, I think that in recent years and working in an environment that I think often has a really interesting mix of the stereotypically masculine with the stereotypically feminine, I'm more and more starting to see um, the importance of bringing those different attributes um, and gender equity in the workplace shouldn't be just about, you know, finding space for those feminine attributes, but also reflecting on well, what are the what are the great attributes that that might come from those more stereotypically masculine attributes. Yeah, I couldn't agree more actually. And I was I remember a conversation with a male colleague who was having a really tough time. Both of us were going through quite a tough time for very similar reasons. But he absolutely felt the pressure to retain a very calm professional exterior and deny even to me and and himself really the impact that it was having on him as an individual whereas he was incredibly sympathetic when I was sort of ranting and upset and you know in a safe space um, and you know never once thought that I should you know, deny my own feelings, yet he reflected back on himself and was actually denying his own feelings in that situation. Um, so, you know, in, in that situation, I actually said to him, your feelings are just as valid as mine in this situation. You know, you can feel that way too. We have to work our way through it. So I, I completely agree. I think sometimes it, um, it people will feel the pressure regardless of the reasons why, regardless of who they are. And that pressure, I think, comes from a power dynamic that isn't wielded properly, mm. as opposed to a labelling, you know, stereotypical labelling or, you know, something that puts people into a box. One of my favourite sayings is from Spider-Man, you know, with great yeah. power comes great responsibility. And I think mm. I would say that, you know, 
as you progress through your career, you also have power that you have to wield quite sensitively and be conscious that you're not doing to others what may have been done to you quite subconsciously in in many situations? A hundred percent. I think I'm sort of seeing this and thinking about this more now as I come to kind of accept what I would call kind of a generational gap. Um, My colleagues um, like to tease me about the fact that I'm sort of grappling with my... um, uh, increasing irrelevance and, and aging um, and no longer uh, young. There, there is something there about, um, and I reflect back to my boarding school days. So I went to boarding school and at boarding school, there was a really unhealthy culture as there are in many hierarchies of people treating the, um, the year nines as they were in New Zealand terribly. And then as they, you know, and doing, and then as you got sort of more older, you got treated less terribly until you were the one that was treating everyone terribly. And that was the kind of culture of, um, and, and, and very um, sanctioned ways as well, you know, very like you could get the year nines to do these kind of tasks that were, I think, frankly, kind of a bit exploitative, like, um, you know, whether it was cleaning or doing things like that. So, and I think about that in the workplace that you have to be really careful. And I've caught myself a few times where you feel that, little bit inside you where you're like well I had to do it this way you know and um and catching yourself on that a bit and thinking oh like what am I what am I doing like why do I think that and how can I challenge that so that I'm not trying to just replicate an experience that actually can be quite negative um because I now have have more power um yeah I think people are very uncomfortable about talking about power and I think that especially we talk about it in different ways we talk about it in terms of gender or we talk about it in terms of culture or race but um it all comes down to to power and until you kind of name it and find space to talk about it comfortably I think it can kind of loom over organizations and people and society so if somebody asked you to mentor them what would you draw on in terms of providing advice and support um I think in terms of kind of the sources, I think it's everything, right? Like I think um, I had this, I caught up with my a friend of mine on the weekend, uh, a New Zealand friend, um, and we accidentally talked for two and a half hours, which was lovely. She had COVID, so she wasn't going anywhere. And I, in the, I don't know, went for a walk, did some cleaning, all those kinds of things. So it was a lovely chat. But in those, that conversation, I I think her wisdom and her thinking on certain things informed the way that I would perhaps mentor someone on a certain topic or a certain issue in a work context. Um, I think that I learn a lot from watching and observing. Um, And I think I have, in the context of my current work, people who I see as kind of role models for various kind of things. It's like I don't have one person where I'm like oh that's the god that's the person it's more like that person is amazing at this and then this person's amazing at that and so in mentoring someone I think being able to draw from those different experiences and people and really identify well, what is it about this person that makes this and the person you're mentoring makes this lesson important it's that kind of tailoring of advice and and I think you know consulting makes you good at that right you need to always be tailoring your advice so if you could do any job in the world you know you could you could just pick and choose anywhere for any organization what would it be 
it, well, it's funny because I think it, it goes a bit to what I was just saying I, I like to do in mentoring. Um, and it's, I, I would love to own a bookshop. That's my kind of ultimate dream. But when we dig into that and my partner always points out, like, you you hate admin. Like, who's going to do your, your admin? I'm like, oh, I'd have to outsource that. Um, and, you know, the actual day-to-day grind of running a bookshop um, may or may not be um, that enjoyable, although I genuinely think that I love the idea of creating spaces um, and also I so much love books that that would be a, a wonderful thing to be able to pull together. But the thing I love about the being a, the bookshop idea is more that I love to I love to recommend books to people and not based on oh here's a book I loved you'll love it but more what does Jules as a person love and what's she interested in and what kind of book do I think she would like and then recommend books to people based on that so I think if I could do a job it would be something like that um and maybe it's maybe books is 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 one thing but um maybe it's just more generally I love to connect people up to things and connect people up to things that will help them or they will enjoy um and you know I get to do a lot of that in my job at the moment as well I mean I think a bookshop that also sold pastries (sighs) and you could go in and have a a little conversation with uh with you and you would say hey I think you'd really enjoy these books and here's a Danish pastry or a a pan au chocolat and a cup of tea go and enjoy I think that sounds amazing I I agree I agree although I must I would definitely need to outsource the pastry making my endeavors to uh learn how to make pastries have been incredibly unsuccessful to date but you are a champion cake maker. I, I do. I do. I, I love my, I love a cake, but a cake and a pastry, I feel like a lot, lot of distance. I've got a long way to go to get into the pastry game. Well, listen, it's been great chatting today. Time has flown by. I think our next, next conversation definitely involves food of some sort. <laughs> um, I do want to say thank you so much. Very generous in your honesty and your stories that you shared. So I really appreciate it. And I'm sure everybody who listens to this podcast will as well. Thanks, Jules. No, so, so nice. And um, I kind of want to go through and ask all the same questions to you. So maybe we'll do that with our food next time. Sounds wonderful. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks as always to the generosity of our delightful guests. The stories of how others have faced up to their challenges can help give all of us courage to keep going with our own. For more great episodes, blogs, learning packages, go to the humansatwork.org website.